Hello, and welcome to the Babiaga Project. The Babiaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history. Lovely researched and recorded by your host, Margo and Sonia. Hi, I'm Margo. I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. But yeah, so basically, I guess we should start with um, introducing you, or if you'd like to introduce yourself, we have for the... (laughs) Um, Okay. Uh, my name is Margaret. I've been doing birth work um, for just over 15 years now in one form or another. Um, I uh, have three kids of my own, um, and I uh, recently left the midwifery profession, so I'm a retired midwife now. Oh, okay. Fascinating. Well, thank you again for coming and <laughs> sitting down with us. Uh Today's episode, we wanted to talk about labor and childbirth and delivery um, from, you know, kind of a historical perspective of how people would have gone about this. Um, So I guess we have some general questions to ask, and of course, we'll have. Um, So I guess the first thing we wanted to talk about was just sort of the actual physical process of giving birth for humans because obviously there's uh, there's differences between like when people go into labor versus like a cat like there's a a much harder time it seems so if if you wanted to talk about what actually happens in that process sure um so we're not 100 percent sure how labor actually starts like what the signal is for labor to start in a person's body but um we think it has something to do with the fetal lungs being mature enough and the fetal lungs may send a hormone to um the person who, uh, who is going to birth them um and that signals oxytocin um is the main hormone <clears throat> that gets released in a woman's or a person's body. Um, And that hormone contracts the uterus during childbirth. So the uterus is full of smooth muscle and oxytocin contracts the uterus kind of from the top to the bottom. And at the bottom of the uterus is a, is um, a hole, basically a small hole where, um, where the baby's going to come out of and where, uh, uh, people who bleed, that's where they bleed as well. So the hole leads into the vagina and then um, and then out to the world. So during labor, as the uterus is contracting and pushing the baby down onto the cervix, the cervix starts to open. So um, it usually starts pretty closed, long and firm, pointed towards the back of the person's body. And then as labor progresses, it pushes um, kind of uh, down and then anterior to the body. So facing forward and it begins to open and it gets very, very soft. So when we talk about labor progress, um, a person at the very beginning of labor, especially a first time parent, um, their cervix will be long and firm and pointed towards the back and closed. And as you move along into labor, the cervix is very easy to feel being short and squishy and soft and opening up. So you need to get to about 10 centimeters um, for the baby's head to fit through. Um, And for a first time person that usually takes at least 10 hours. Oh, wow. Usually, <laughs> that's kind of uh, what the textbooks consider to be normal, which um, we can talk about normal later. <laughs> um, but often it'll take about at least 10 hours of good solid active labor to get from five centimeters. And I should say that's from five centimeters to 10 centimeters for a first time person. Um, and that uh, the uh, length of time that it takes to get from zero to five is really variable. So it can take a couple of hours or it can take like four days. Um, So that's when you hear people saying, oh, I was in labor for four days. Um, It's likely, well, it it wouldn't be, you know, the active active labor, what we call, we call it early labor or pre-labor. And then the uterus continues to contract and you push, push, push. um, And the vaginal wall is made of really stretchy 
uh, muscle. And so is the um, introitus, like the, the, um, the vaginal uh, space, vaginal opening. Mm-hmm. It's also stretchy. It stretches around the baby's head and then you push the baby out. Okay. So I also wanted to ask then, so you said for a first time person, right? It can take, you know, up to 10 hours is normal. Does it get easier after subsequent births or? Yeah. Usually the second birth will take about half as long as the first. Mm -hmm. And um, often the third is the third and fourth are a little bit wild of a wild card. Um, so sometimes the third can take a little bit longer and often it's a lot shorter and then same with the fourth. And then after that, you're just popping them up. Okay. Yeah. Just because we've been talking about in the previous two episodes, right. Historically. And I mean, today in a lot of places as well, still, you know, it's quite normal for women to have kids, you know, every two, every three ish years and, you know, just asking about, okay, what are the sort of physiological what what's the physiological situation there after you've had you know your fourth or fifth child mm-hmm. um so I also wanted to ask a bit about again kind of from a physical level like what kinds of things can go wrong because it's at least often you know in what we're reading it'll just sort of you know as a general broad term say well okay there are complications or there were you know risks and it's kind of you know, what, what kinds of complications could somebody expect um, going into labor and delivery? Um, well, I guess if uh, kind of the biggest complication really would be that um, the uterus isn't getting really good coordinated contractions and not pushing the baby's head down onto the cervix, which helps the cervix open. So if you don't have the baby really well applied to the cervix, mm-hmm. really we say well applied so like it's really pushing down on top of the cervix um that's not happening like if the baby's head is tilted or if it's just floating up a little bit or if it's backwards um like if the baby's face is up rather than down so the optimal way for a baby to come out is with the crown of their head right pressing onto the cervix it's a nice shape for the cervix um if their forehead is or if the you know their um uh, like this, like deflexed, like that, right. press down on the cervix. And it's really hard for the uterus to continue working and give that positive feedback on the cervix to continue those contractions. Okay. Um, so, um, so that's kind of a pretty common thing to happen when you're having your first baby. Um, then there's uh, like a whole host of other things that might happen. Um, the blood flow through the placenta might be compromised to the fetus and they might not be getting enough oxygen. So their heart rate might dip down um, too much. Or um, uh, like in, if you've already gone into labor um, and you, like, you know that the placenta is in the right place and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, it might just be that labor has gone on for a really long time and the fetus gets really tired and it's not um, coping very well anymore. Those kinds of things. Um, during pregnancy, a complication that sometimes comes up is that the placenta is over top of the cervix, in which case you can't, the baby can't get out if the placenta is covering the top of the cervix, then it's in the way. Um, and then also as the cervix dilates, then uh, the person would start to bleed a lot if the placenta was covering it, because as the cervix opens, then there's more risk of bleeding. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. No, that makes a lot of sense then. Um we also wanted to ask about, you know, I guess now that we've sort of laid the groundwork of this is what is actually physically happening to the person who's giving birth and to the fetus, we wanted to talk about also, you know, kind of the role of a midwife, because as, you know, we've talked about in our previous episodes, historically, up until like the 1850s at the earliest, mm-hmm. it was all midwives attending to childbirth and wondering about kind of what what that looks like when you're you're kind of going through a birth with someone and what that would look like as compared to you know uh, again I know basically nothing about this process so okay so in Canada if you choose to have a midwife um 
you have to choose either between a midwife or a physician uh, mm -hmm. unless you have complications and in which case you'll be referred to an obstetrician and you can still maintain um, your care with your midwife with the obstetrician um, being the consulting specialist uh -huh. um, say so midwives are experts in normal labor pregnancy labor and birth um, mm -hmm. and postpartum um, and uh, can manage um, kind of normal variants of that and a little bit of um, abnormal um, usually with a transfer to um, either a pediatrician or an ob like depending if the baby's already born or an obstetrician if um, the baby's not born yet so um Midwives meet uh, very regularly with the clients, and the um, we we consider the the family to be partners in their healthcare rather than um, rather than somebody who's he, who needs to be told what to do. Uh, so a midwife will give the the person or the family all of the pros and cons or the risks and benefits of any medication or procedure or option that they may have. And then our job is to support what the um, client wants to do. So in general, we don't really have a vested interest in what the client is choosing, if they want a home birth or a hospital birth, or they want to do this test or don't want to do it. Um, occasionally, we will recommend for the um, health and safety of mom or uh, of the person or a baby, um, recommend doing a certain test or say that that is what the recommendation would be if you had an obstetrician or a doctor. But in general, we're there for people who want to keep things as uh, normal and straightforward as possible. Um, and, and I think the biggest difference really is that we will be with the people or the person and their family, their chosen birth attend or their chosen um, uh, birth group or partner or whatever, um, will be there from active labor right through until a couple of hours after, after the baby is born. So often if you're having a, a doctor, then you'll be in the hospital and you'll have a nurse attending to you usually right until you're pushing the baby out, unless there's been a complication, in which case then whatever OB is on call um, will come in and attend to the baby. And then whatever pediatrician is on call will come in um, and be there for the birth. So um, when you have a midwife, you have um, the same person with you throughout your pregnancy and birth um, and postpartum. And then, um, and you really develop a relationship with that midwife um, and feel safe. The, the, uh, most normal way to give birth is someplace that you feel safe and with birth attendants um, with whom you feel safe. And that is the goal of the midwife. Um, and then midwives also, uh, are, we follow our clients up until six weeks postpartum and we do home visits for usually about two weeks. So we'll always see the person at home um, generally within 24 hours of the birth and then day three, five, maybe seven, maybe 10. Um, and if there are more complications or breastfeeding isn't going well or they need more support, then we'll see them more regularly. And then you also always have access to your midwife. Um, usually people are using, well, we used pagers for a really long time. And I think there's other systems that are a bit easier to use now, but um, some kind of paging system where you can call your midwife if there's an emergency. And often we're really good at triaging. So we're good at keeping people at home um, if we can, rather than you know being panicked and, and feeling like you need to go into the hospital to do something. Um, so that, that's kind of my spiel that I give or used to give when people were deciding whether or not they wanted a midwife. So you just got the whole <laughs> why you should have a midwife spiel. No, it makes perfect sense. And I also wanted to ask, I didn't realize that you have to pick like physician or midwife still to this day. Like I knew historically that there's been some issues between the two groups, but I hadn't realized that it's still to the present day was like a either or scenario. Yeah, well, a lot of GPs, so it used to be that GPs would follow their own patients and then deliver yeah. the babies, but most GPs aren't doing births now. Um, oh, so there are okay. GPs that are doing births, um, but they're often in a birth-centered um, practice. So most of the time you won't go to see your GP to find out you're pregnant and then be followed by your GP and then have your GP deliver um, your baby or help you like catch your baby at the hospital or at home. Um, mm -hmm. So it's for specialized care. Midwives are the specialists. So basically you okay. can have either a, a GP or an obstetrician or a midwife. And that one of those three will follow you throughout your birth, unless you're very lucky and happen to have a GP that still does births. Okay, that makes sense. I guess I also 
we wanted to talk about the sort of emotional and I guess psychological aspect of delivery and sort of what what a pregnant person does or what um, kind of the the strategies people use to deal with the I, yeah I guess the sort of emotional or physical and sorry emotional or mental um, kind of issues around giving birth with pain and fear or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, there's this fantastic midwife in um, the States, Ina May Gaskin, and she really pioneered um, bringing midwifery back to the back to people um, in the 60s and 70s. Um, and she would say that the best way to get the baby out is how the baby got in. So oxytocin is the hormone of love and comfort and is released um, during orgasm and during sexual encounters. And she really believed that that is the optimal state to get the baby out as well. So if we can, um, if we can create an atmosphere and environment for um, the people who are having the baby to um to be touching or held or um kissing um just feeling really really safe and comfortable in their own little cave like people used to go to caves to birth right like you would go <laughs> and animals still do you find a little cave and you go and have your babies um and that's really what humans need to be able to birth as well um so, I mean, people take all sorts of classes and I used to do childbirth education for people um, and kind of offering different suggestions for what might feel good. So uh, a lot of people want to be held or touched during labor and some people don't want to be touched at all. Like I didn't want anybody's hands on me when I was having both of my babies um, other than my best friend supported me from behind. Um, but uh, um lots of people want to be like rubbed on their leg or there's this really cool um this really interesting thing that we often do in childbirth education where you um hold an ice cube in your hand and you just sit there and you hold an ice cube and you hold it hold it hold it until you just can't take it anymore and then you drop it and then you hold the another ice cube again maybe in the different hand or in the same hand and you rub your leg or um rub your arm like this or do something that is touching you in a different way and you realize that you can hold that ice cube for a lot longer um, because the pain pathway is being disrupted a little bit. So um, a lot of birth um, uh, partner, uh, like the goal of the birth partner is to kind of disrupt that pain pathway. But and sometimes it can feel really good to have like your back rubbed or your hip squeezed or um, just somebody right next to you, like touching your head or your hair. Um, it's, it varies for different people, but really the goal is to, to feel, um, to, for the person to feel like they're not alone and that they're safe. And a lot of the role of midwifery or a midwife or a birth, any birth attendant is to be there saying, this is totally normal. This is completely normal. You got this. You're safe. This is normal. Because when you've never done it before, and even when you have done it before, you're like, oh my God, is this like this pain? This can't be right. Um, yeah. And having somebody there who you trust um, telling you that it's okay and it's normal um, is uh, is a huge factor in being able to birth normally. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Kind of getting, yeah, I didn't know that about the different pain pathways. Mm -hmm. um, I also wanted to ask about, you know, we know that until about the we, we don't really historically see a steep decline in mortality rates um, for um, like maternal mortality rate and infant mortality again until about the 40s or 50s when they start being able to do things like blood transfusions and they have antibiotics and that sort of thing. And reading about that, I was, I, it also made me wonder at what point would, would a situation develop where it would be considered abnormal and would need to have that kind of either, I guess, hospital care, or I'm not sure exactly what would happen, but what would be sort of the, 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 I guess, what would trigger saying, okay, well now this is no longer, you know, a normal amount of pain or a normal situation for you. 
Yeah, um, pain doesn't really come into it unless there's something really weird happening, like a placental abruption or something, um, in which case you would have, um, well, a bunch of other symptoms that you'd be watching for. But um, in general, like if we were at a home birth and everything was really normal, um, but then the baby's heart rate started to dip with every contraction or after every contraction and there's no other reason for it, then that's a sign that the placenta is not functioning optimally. So if you do that, you know, there's protocols to follow. So if that's happening a certain number of times, then it's considered um, prudent to transfer into the hospital to have a little bit more monitoring and then access to emergency services like a C-section. Um, that would kind of be the biggest reason to transfer. Um, another reason would, another thing that might happen is that um, the person starts bleeding um, and a little bit of blood is normal. It's called show and it happens, bloody show, and it happens as the cervix is opening, the blood vessels kind of break and they mix in with the mucus and then you, um, and then you have it on your, just on your, like if you wipe after you pee um, Mm -hmm. on the toilet, but uh, consistent bleeding, like period bleeding or bleeding like a faucet is never normal. So that would be a good reason to transfer to hospital. Um, another reason that's kind of a little bit more debated is, is if there's meconium in the water when the water breaks or if meconium starts showing after the waters have broken and meconium is the baby's first poo. Um, and it can be very normal. It can just be a sign that the baby's at term and it's just being squeezed and pooping. Um, but it can also be a sign of stress that the, that the fetus is feeling some stress and is pooping and, um, and in that case it's recommended to transfer to the hospital. So those are kind of the biggest things that that you'd see um, if you're at a a normal home birth and those would be kind of the reasons why you might need to go in. Um, I I wanted to talk um, in our uh, previous episodes, we talked a lot about the 19th century medicalization of childbirth and the complications that arose specifically with that. Um, And like, you know, the, the move to women laboring on their backs in hospitals and things like that, and like the complications that arise with that. Um, I was wondering uh, what your experience with like lifestyle changes in the 20th and 21st century and um, these sort of processes have been like as you've assisted births. Um, like lifestyle changes. Births that you know about. Yeah. Like as like people working more like sitting and in factories or yeah because um so my research is about um in indigenous uh culture ways and especially in the 19th century we found that um compared to women who are calling doctors who are mostly like upper middle class women who stayed at home and had like maids and servants and stuff indigenous women who were still living you know traditional lifestyles um aside even when they went into hospitals and like the this situation in which they were giving birth changed still had slightly better outcomes than the women who were like living with chairs and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's um, totally, I totally agree. I had a midwife uh, preceptor, like a teacher um, who was like firmly believed that births, uh, this was in Ontario, um, births in January and February were more likely to end up in C-section for first time moms because people have spent the winter um, reclining, like sitting in a chair reclining, watching TV. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, out here in my practice, I'm on Vancouver Island and we I live rurally and my practice partner and I had about a 40 percent home birth rate um, with really high, uh, high successful home birth rate. And we really believe that it's because people are out here are walking and hiking. They live an active lifestyle. They're often gardening, which means that they're squatting. Um, they're moving their bodies, they're, uh, um, they're moving right up until they have their baby. So that baby is really nicely settled down into the pelvis. Um, and, uh, um, and then they're also encouraged, like that all that all sets the stage, right? And then they're encouraged to labor in whatever position they want. So I think it was actually King Louis, this something who um, wanted to, he was a voyeur, he wanted to see 
women giving birth, right? So he set them up. He wanted them set up reclining with their, that's how stirrups came to be used because he uh. wanted watch so to be able to see the vulva and the vagina they had to have their legs spread up in uh, stirrups and then he could kind of watch what was happening um, and then of course that translates to a lot of medical professionals um, finding it easier to monitor the baby with the um, external fetal monitoring like with the machines it's much easier if the person is lying on their back or on a little bit on their side much more difficult um to monitor or it can be more difficult and it's a lot more work um to monitor with the person moving around or they get up and they're in the bathtub or and they're sitting on the toilet and then somebody has to be with them the whole time which is what right. midwives do or birth attendants might do but um is a little bit more difficult if a nurse is um having, you know, it should be one-to-one -one care, but maybe the the ward is really busy that day and the doctors aren't around and the nurse is taking care of multiple people. So um, it really became um, convenience, uh, like a question of convenience for the medical professionals um, coupled with the, uh, like the more sedentary lifestyle. Um, yeah. So I would definitely mm -hmm. agree that, yeah, people who, that was a big thing in our practice. We always encouraged people to to stay active and to walk a lot and to continue doing the, or the physical activity. And if they weren't very physically active, then at least to start walking, like a little right. bit of walking every day, even an obese that now too, like it's recommended by the, um, the uh, Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists in Canada to um, walk for a little bit every single day. And that really greatly improves your chance of being able to have a vaginal birth. That's really interesting. Yeah, and I think it's also very interesting that you say how this, you know, there was this shift from birth being about, you know, the person giving birth and their experience and what they, you know, what is right for them basically to shifting, especially in the kind of medicalized sphere towards a very um, like practitioner focused mm -hmm. situation for a while where that's kind of um, where the, the person's experiences are kind of less important and what's going to make them comfortable is less important. And as we talked about in our, uh, you know, fertility and infertility episode, we also at the same time see this shift from valuing the pregnant uh, mother over the, you know, potential fetus to a lot of shift towards, you know, blaming and shaming uh, people who miscarry or who don't live up to whatever, like, standards of, of, proper care uh, during pregnancy and saying, well, you know, we should really be valuing, you know, it, it just feels like in a lot of ways, the person who's actually pregnant, it gets devalued over time as we place more and more value on mm -hmm. um, the, you know, the physician or the practitioner or the fetus. Um, you know, as we've said before, with regards to you know, this idea that you're a terrible person if you ate a turkey sandwich because deli meats might cause something or, mm -hmm. you know, and how that kind of, there, there is that shift in mentality through the 20th century, basically. Well, it's, and that's an interesting point that you bring up because a lot of restrictions have been put on uh, people who are pregnant in the last little while. And like you can't, like you mentioned, deli meat. Deli meat is totally fine if you're pregnant as long as it hasn't been sitting out on the counter all day. So you use your good yep. common sense. You can still have sushi, just don't buy it from the, you know, the gas station at the end of the day. <laughs> and maybe you don't eat the leftovers that were out all night. In, well, I mean, I eat leftovers that were out all night all the time, but maybe I couldn't <laughs> if I was pregnant, right? Um, so there's a huge culture of, um, I mean, it's just the continuation of the culture of blaming the woman for anything mm -hmm. that might happen and putting more and more restrictions onto that person. Um, and like, for instance, Texas just passed the six week um, abortion law. So you can't get an abortion um, after six weeks in Texas, which is just outrageous. Like most people don't know they're pregnant. And, and if you are not wanting to grow a fetus inside you, then, then you shouldn't have to so it's just putting such a huge uh such a huge value on this fetus um and not on the person carrying fetus 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm to my understanding, at least six weeks pregnant would mean it would be calculated as like the day of your last period. So that would mean that your period is what, like two weeks late at most. Yeah. 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 That just seems absurd. And yeah, I mean, as we've talked about in previous episodes, I mean, the likelihood of that pregnancy going to term is also still very low. Yeah, exactly. And how it's, you know, there has been this huge shift over the last 200 years from, eh, okay, like maybe you're pregnant. I don't know. We'll, we'll see if you, if you feel quickening, if you feel the movement, then we'll know. But until then, I mean, I don't know, just try to take care of yourself too. Now where it just feels like, you know, I'm like, I have friends currently who are pregnant and it's like every little thing it's like, well, okay, can you eat like how much caffeine can you drink? Is it okay to have a cup of tea? The sushi might poison the baby somehow. And it just turns into this huge, like anxiety inducing. Yeah. Very stressful. Situation. Yeah. Yeah. It seems very stressful about how to, you know, it, it just seems like the standard is absolutely perfect. And anything short of that is like, you monster, you ate something that maybe possibly was not the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, right. So I also wanted to ask, you said how you do the, um, that a midwife will follow up for, you know, six-ish weeks after the birth. And I wanted to ask about that because, again, I think it's often presented as just like, you know, there's, you go into labor, you deliver the baby, and then that's it. Everyone just goes home and all done or <laughs> that's finished. But it, you know, I mean, obviously the reality is that this is a huge, I, I don't know if this is the right word, but like traumatic physical event where it's a lot of things are happening in your body and what kind of care does a person need after going through that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the biggest thing is learning how to breastfeed and really getting the baby onto the breast as soon as possible right after the birth and then um, facilitating breastfeeding. Um, that really is best for for that baby. Of course, there's about 8 to 15% of women who actually can't breastfeed, who either don't make enough, well, usually it's that they don't make enough milk. Um, so, which is another interesting thing that in the past we would have all been having babies at the same time and there would have been an auntie or a sister or a friend who could nurse the baby. And that's not really, that's kind of frowned upon these days. Um, but yeah, the biggest, the biggest aspect is getting the baby on the breast without pain to the, to the person um, who's breastfeeding. So nipple pain is a huge issue because of trying to get the right latch on so that a midwife usually helps a lot with that. Um, and then if the person has had any uh, stitches in their vulva or their vagina, then that um, usually is looked at. We also monitor how much blood the person is losing. So normal to have a period that's, um, you know, a little bit heavier or as heavy as your heaviest period um, for a few days, but not normal to be bleeding. Like I, like I said earlier, it's never normal to be bleeding like a faucet. Um, and then we also make sure that the uterus is, um, is involuting. So it's going down. So the uterus usually gets to, um, like pretty high up into your body. And then right after you have your baby, it usually sits right at your belly button. And then, um, as the days go by, it stays firm and hard, um, and continues to move back until it tucks back down below the, um, the pubic bone. Um, so those are kind of the main things that we're looking for. And then we're also talking about postpartum depression and baby blues. Um, there's so many hormones that go through your body right after you have a baby. And, um, and for a lot of people that can cause um, a little bit of baby blues, we say on day three, usually it's really normal to be crying a lot. And even if you don't feel that sad, your body is just kind of letting go of all of this emotion and hormones and you feel kind of up and down and then um, it should start to get better after that. But that's something that we monitor for um, all the way through till six weeks. And if you're really, if you're still depressed at six weeks, then, then that well, I mean, probably even before that, but if I was still worried about somebody at six weeks, then I would refer them on to, to somebody else. 
Right, that makes sense. Um, I also wanted to ask with regards to breastfeeding, as you said, there's eight to 15% of women who just like physically can't. Um, and then of course, there's also issues around, you know, women who can't breastfeed because they have to return to work in a job that maybe doesn't facilitate pumping or um, that, that just doesn't facilitate which is actually a human rights issue. And if anybody is having that problem, then they need to contact um, a lawyer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Agreed. Um, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I know that, I mean, we can go into a whole other <laughs> spiel about that. I didn't realize that until there, that there were and continue to be places where it's illegal to breastfeed publicly, which just seems wild to me. Are there still in Canada? I don't think there is in I, Canada. I don't there know. There is in the U.S. Yeah. It's, yeah. it, uh, like, normally you can't actually, like, it's like a ticketing offense, and you won't often actually have to pay that fine if you, like, Confess. take it to court or whatever, but it a lot of people will get ticketed for, like, breaking decency laws, because yeah. um, in most states in the U.S., you can't be topless if you have like a breast, like mm -hmm. what is it in, on Tumblr, female presenting nipples. Oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah, if you have distended breasts, like, you know, what we call female breasts, yeah, you can't huh. have not wear a shirt. Right, <laughs> even to breastfeed. Even to, yeah, I think, yeah, so normally I think like if you're like, oh, well, I was breastfeeding, um, there's, there are places where they'll be like, why didn't you like have a covering? And it's like, because my baby didn't want to be smothered. But yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's the... like those issues. I think generally you, if you go to the court, they won't actually make you pay it. But that's also like, why are you making somebody go to court for mm -hmm. a child? But yeah, I've also seen a lot of, you know, people talking about how someone would tell them, like, well, you should go do that in the bathroom. And it's like, no, that's disgusting. You go eat your food in the bathroom, stranger. <laughs> um, but anyway, I did want to just circle back. So if you are in a situation, you know, where you either can't breastfeed or it's not, for whatever reason, it's not happening, how safe is formula actually? I mean, I feel like it's so demonized a lot of the time now is like, you're basically feeding rat poison. Like is, what I guess is the, the actual like medical view of this rather than like angry Facebook posts? Oh, well, rat poison is a little intense, I think. <laughs> um, I, formula is a, is a, is an alternative if you need it. It's a tool that you can use if you're not able to breastfeed. Um, there are links to um, asthma later in life and obesity later in life, um, which is why if we have somebody um, needing to formula or bottle feed, then we talk about um, sort of like infant-led bottle feeding and with one to the cues and using a very slow flow nipple and making them work for it, that kind of thing, so that it more mimics what would be coming out of the breast. Um, but formula is there for a reason. And in our day and age, when we're not treating babies to nurse, um, it really is a fantastic tool that, um, that some people might need to use. It's all to, uh, it, it, it's, made all to a very high standard and basically like most formula is basically the same like you can get formula that's like um you know better for your baby's brain more dha and etc 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 and um there's not a lot of research showing that that actually improves anything so if you need to use formula then you can just kind of use whatever milk breast milk is human milk is is optimal and formula is there if you need it yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I guess just getting a little bit more like actual 
yeah, like a- actual facts on this rather than the um, <laughs> the mommy Facebook wars moms. online. Yeah, well, it's, it's always it's always good just to see that it's you know not actually the worst thing that you could possibly do, and you know, ruining your baby or no. whatever else is going on. I did want to quick circle back to um, activity levels during pregnancy and leading up to birth. Um, just because, I mean, you know, most of the time, historically, at least we see most medical manuals and, you know, home recipe, um, home, home handwritten recipe books and health books and that kind of thing usually have given pretty, pretty reasonable kind of advice around like, well, you know, just keep doing your regular activities, but don't lift heavy things and don't lift anything over your head because there was basically this belief that lifting things over your head would cause the umbilical cord to wrap around the baby's neck. And it's not until the 19th century that we start seeing the whole, like, if you are a wealthy you know, fancy lady, you should be laying in bed for as much of your pregnancy as possible because you need so much rest and, you know, to not be moving around. Um, and I'm wondering now, it, as, as you've said, obviously being sedentary for nine-ish months is not a great plan leading up to the birth, but I'm wondering about this sort of early modern and medieval ideas around like, is, is, is it actually dangerous to lift heavy things or to lift things above your head while pregnant? Um, no, <laughs> I mean, the short answer is no. Uh, you're okay. So the first thing is fetuses don't breathe through their necks. So it doesn't matter if the cord is around their neck. What matters is if there's a kink in the cord um, or the cord gets pinched somewhere, then the blood can't flow, the oxygen rich blood can't flow to the fetus and then the oxygen poor blood can't flow out. So there's always a lot of hysteria around, I was born with my cord around my neck. Well, you're not breathing through your neck. So it really doesn't matter. Um, The fetus and the cord are in a huge thing of water so everything is all floating around even if you have a fairly decent impact to your uh to your abdomen um it would still be difficult to actually harm the fetus a a car accident would be something that would really harm the fetus but if you like are walking along and you whack your belly um on the door frame or something doesn't really matter or you fall off your bike and land on your side unless you're going like 80 kilometers an hour it really doesn't matter Um, I don't really see how lifting something over your head would cause the umbilical cord to move. If it was that easy to move a fetus and a cord, then we would never have breech birth or, um, or have C-sections due to malposition. Um, and in general, I wouldn't, I always say, don't take up weightlifting when you're pregnant because your body's not used to it. And you've got a lot of uh, the hormone relaxing in your body, which, um, basically does exactly what it sounds like. It relaxes all of your joints and your muscles, um, as well as uh, your stomach muscles can start to kind of come apart a little bit if your core is not um, tight already. So, but if you are a weightlifter, then continue lifting your weights as long as it's comfortable. Um, Yeah, like you said, remaining sedentary for the 10 months of pregnancy is uh, really not not a great idea. You don't really, I mean, rest when you're tired. Um, you're, you're using a lot of energy to build a fetus, but like take a nap in the afternoon, but you don't need to lay around all day. Okay. That makes sense then. So, you know, the, in terms of lifting, it would be more so don't lift something that is heavy by your standards. Exactly. I guess rather than that make that makes sense then. Yeah. And yeah, I, I was quite skeptical about the cord thing anyway, but I just wanted to check, you know. Oh yeah, for sure. You never do know what's <laughs> how how things how things could be, you know. Yep. I'm aiming to have kids in about five ish years. So I gotta 
got to start learning these things. You know, can I lift my arms above my head? Yes, you can. We don't know your head. (laughs) Um, So we're hitting about our hour mark. And um, one of the things that we like to do on the podcast is to talk about like the, the sort of purpose of what we're getting at is we talk about these things throughout history that have affected, you know, our conception of different like cultural ideas. And you mentioned before this change in um, like community around birth and childcare. Um, yeah. like we're not having babies at the same time. Um, these sort of things. I was wondering, this is a very convoluted way to ask this question, um, but sort of like, if like what would your opinion be if we're looking at sort of like historically how we've done things um going forward if we could start building a a healthier culture for new parents uh what or expecting parents like what would that look like if you could create like an ideal world an ideal world. An ideal world. <laughs> um, well, I think it would be more than just the nuclear family. Um, <laughs> people often feel so isolated when they have a new baby because they don't have anyone around. And especially when you're home nursing, like babies need to eat every two hours, usually, especially at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So if you're home, you know, it's hard to go out when you need to nurse. And especially if you're not very good at it yet or haven't really quite figured it out or you've got nipple pain or something, then you're just home by yourself. Um, I mean, there's pros and cons to having family around, right? And I think mm-hmm. that we've gotten very, um, we're not used to having mothers and mother-in-laws and aunts and sisters around. I think ideally we could let go of some of our independence and, and allow a little bit more help to happen. Um, I think it's difficult unless people are like living in a stronger community. So I don't know, community for people, it's, um, that can be a really challenging thing because often community resources are directed towards um, people who might have um, uh, more mental health issues or they might uh, need more resources in terms of bus fare and food, that kind of thing. So um, there's often not a lot of resources for kind of the average woman, which is, I mean, to be expected if people need more resources than, like people who are higher needs than uh, as a society, we need to help care for them. It's also, and on the other hand, it's difficult for kind of the average woman sometimes if she doesn't have any friends who are having babies at the same time, then and you're kind of on your own if you're not higher need for um, the basics of life. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Building more community, <laughs> okay. letting go of the of the need for independence, and allowing your like knowing that it's okay to be irritated by your mother-in-law, but she's really there to help. We're so used to living in a nuclear family, right, and doing everything yeah. our own way that we've kind of lost lost that um, multi-generational family that really is quite supportive. It can be quite supportive. Yeah, we've talked about that in um, in the two episodes that we've, we're going to release before this one. Um, how really early, like how, how recently that concept has developed, and especially if you look at like non-European communities in Canada and the United States, like in the prairies and plains, that idea really came with the 20th century that like you live in a nuclear family and you as the parent are responsible for your child in total, that like caregiving for children didn't extend outside of, well, like the mother mostly, but Mm -hmm. the, the two parents. Yeah, I know for myself, my best friend and I had babies at the same time, um, and we co-parented our babies, we spent a lot of days together, a lot of afternoons just letting the kids play and taking care of each other's kids, and that was such a wonderful way to be, to have somebody around who you're okay with also, you know, 
having that other person not discipline your child, but, you know, have their eye on them too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, cool. and I think that makes sense beyond, you know, as, as you say, like a family and a community doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, blood relatives either. It can be your best friend. It can be, you know, other people who, you know, you are close with in other ways rather than, you know, feeling like, okay, well, I don't live close to family, so I guess I'm on my own kind of mm-hmm. situation, which I think a lot of people find themselves in. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I agree. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Yeah. Learned a lot. Good. <laughs> it was nice to meet you. It was yeah, really nice about you. thank you so much for listening to the bobby yaga project if you want more awesome bobby yaga content uh, you should join our patreon where you can get access to bonus content exclusive merch um, our super special discord and extra book club content Um, we want to specifically shout out these patreon members Yes, special thank you to John, the Age of Darkness podcast, Christian, Jessica, Jack CW, Whispering Sage, Annie, Adriana, and Katerina. We are delighted to have you on board, and thanks again for helping make the Baba Yaga Project possible. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Baba Yaga Project, and as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and on our website for the most up-to-date happenings. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It really helps us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. There's also Patreon-exclusive merch and content. And we'll see you next week!